This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Save Liberal seats, two-term incumbents, independents. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellas from RN Breakfast, joining you from Ngunnawal country. And I'm Fran Kelly from Frankly on Gadigal Land of the Aora Nation. And PK, it's Budget Week. This is our second Budget Week this year, which is, you know, pretty exciting for people like you and I. <laughs> Tragics, really. Um, we're in this post-budget phase now. I, I always remember something, PK. When we first started out this podcast, uh, I think it was our first Budget Week together, actually. We had Kerry O'Brien on as a guest, and he said, that, you know, we asked him, what do you look for in a budget? He said, well, you know, after the speech, after the headlines, in the days following, you always find some smelly eggs. That's what he mm. said, smelly eggs within, something that sort of just smells a bit rotten and is a bit kind of real for people. Um, doesn't smell as sweet as the government of the day would have you believe anyway. So let me ask you this, PK, you were there on Budget Lockup. You've had a good look at the budget papers. Two days on from budget night. Any smelly eggs there? Look, I think they put the smelly eggs in the budget for all to see, which is consistent with their strategy of we're going to tell you the truth. You know, the, the we're nation's have big, finances, hard national conversations. Yep, the nation's finances are in dire straits. This is the trajectory. So in some ways, the government wants us to smell those eggs early so that they can make a case for change. Mm. So they want us to sniff those eggs. Now, the word the Treasurer wants to embed in our brains is the word restraint. That's the story of this budget that he wants to tell and wants to convince us that that has been their strategy. So let's look if there's evidence of that. I think there is some evidence of that. Labor have been restrained and are trying to show that they are a prudent, responsible government, not just because it's an important political imperative, although I think that's one of the motivations, that they are not reckless with the economy, which they are often painted to be by their opponents, but also because it's the right thing to do for these times. Now, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, Finance Minister, Katie Gallagher, uh, have not gone for the easy political wins, which actually the Treasurer admitted was very hard for him, actually, at the press club, because he said it's really hard not to give people cost of living relief when there is essentially a cost of living crisis, particularly with energy bills, but have decided not to go for the short term, but the long term win. They know that they need to work in tandem with the Reserve Bank and basically slay the dragon, as the Treasurer said, of inflation can't do that by giving people money to spend. So it's a budget which is opening a door for more difficult conversations and therefore reforms, things like tax, revenue on the spending side in the next budget, which is in May, and then beyond in subsequent budgets. And at this stage, it's about they have got a windfall from uh, the high commodity prices and tax receipts. They've paid down the debt with that, largely. Uh, they haven't gone and put it into the pockets of people. But it's there's risks for them here too with this strategy, politically for sure. Here's the, the Treasurer speaking at the National Press Club on Wednesday, followed by the Shadow Treasurer, Angus Taylor, speaking on RM Breakfast. Perhaps surprising to some, 
was our determination to deliver cost of living relief only where it met very specific and very strict criteria. Relief that was targeted in the right way, timed in the right way, and which delivered the right kind of result. And we did it in this way not to appear tough, not just to win kudos with the econocrats or the markets or the commentariat, but because we knew that doing any different would be doing damage to the people that we are here to serve. An indiscriminate spraying of cash would have made our inflation challenge more profound and more prolonged and ultimately more painful for people. Tony Burke said uh, that, that Australians uh, will see the impact of a change of government in their bank accounts. Uh, Anthony Albanese said Australians will be better off under a Labor government. These were not conditional commitments. Mm. Uh, they made them. And what's clear in this budget is they're not keeping them. They've given up on the electricity price reduction. They've given up on an improvement in real wages in this election cycle. That was Shadow Treasurer Angus Taylor and Treasurer Jim Chalmers. And we're going to be joined soon by Lenore Taylor, the editor of Guardian Australia, to really talk a bit more about not just the, the promise, promises, but the politics of this budget too. First, though, let's go to some of the promises, PK. Can you just remind us you were there in the lockup? What was actually in this budget for all of us? Yeah, Fran, um, it's always the case a number of policies were deliberately dropped, so to speak, in the lead up to the budget. So we actually knew quite a bit about what was in this budget. I've had many people actually discussing in the press gallery where I've been all week. I'm in Parliament House recording this with you. That's where I've been broadcasting all week saying, you know, we knew it all. I often think, and I think you'd agree with me on this, you, know, you don't have to do it that way. It's an old fashioned thing. It's a public relations exercise for a government. They made a decision to really share the stories and tell the story over the week before, the two weeks before, and they did that. One of those policies ended up being, of course, in the budget was the paid parental leave scheme, which we talked about being extended to the 26 weeks over the next four years. Um, that's a big one. The other one being $1.7 billion a year increase to childcare subsidies, also huge. Of course, it's an election promise, but uh, it being funded fully in the budget and explained key moment too. Uh, there was a surprise commitment to build one million new homes by the end of the decade under the government's National Housing Accord, which brings together different levels of government institutional investors and the construction sector and superannuation um, funds over five years from 2024. That's deliberate again so that they don't um, overheat or the, the sort of housing sector. That Again, that's trying to manage inflation and also skill shortages. Uh, most of these will be built in the private sector, although the federal government has committed an initial $350 million to help fund 10,000 new affordable properties near jobs. That's their whole thing for that. They say it's all about being near the jobs because people are being priced out by high rents. Again, cost of living. Now, the government is also paying down the debt or trying to, and they've been helped by the windfall they got, the halving of the, the deficit over the next year with that $40 billion improvement to the budget bottom line. So that that's important. And I mentioned that earlier. That's, that's a politically important as well to say we are not just getting excited with the money. We are actually trying to think about fiscal discipline, which is important. So Fran, then, then the projections are in it and the projections became the biggest story because I think they'd shared so much of this already. And the projections were enormous. The power one's the biggest one that mm. everyone's been freaking out about and they should be. 56% increase 
power prices over the next two years. Staggering. Businesses could hit the wall. Manufacturers could hit the wall. Families and particularly those on fixed incomes or people who are increasingly the working poor are going to find that very hard to pay for. And in some cases won't be able to and in some cases won't put the heaters on. And obviously that puts people at risk. So that's really big. Mm. And that's the one that I think has been dominant since the budget came down, I think you'd agree, and has really taken over the discussion about what the government is prepared to do. Yeah, because this budget is all about, uh, has been shaped by the inflationary challenge. That's what the Treasurer told us. And this is the biggest contributor to that inflationary challenge, the rising power prices. I mean, if you think about that, PK, 56% increase over the next two years, power bills are already high. You know, for some on their power bills, that's about $800 higher by the end of the next two years. That's a lot of pain. And as you say, the budget, this restraint budget, offered no immediate cure. And that must have been on purpose because other countries, you know, the UK, France, they've all done it. They've given subsidies, power subsidies for people's bills because, you know, gas and electricity prices are skyrocketing all around the world in large part because of the Ukraine war. You know, it's one big contributor to the to inflation, as we know. And it's going to get worse for households and for businesses. There's a couple of things about this, I think, PK. First, let's face it. We've got used to handouts. In response to the pandemic, past government handing out billions of dollars of support to stimulate the economy, to keep people and businesses afloat. So a budget without a cash splash, we're not mm -hmm. used to that. It hasn't no, happened for not. a while and we don't <laughs> like it. So we're all going, well, hang on, it's a bread and butter budget, but where's the butter, where's the honey for us, really? The second thing is Labor promised us in the election that power prices would go down by $275 by 2025. That was the government's promise. I think they said it more than 90 times during the election. Now, we're not at 2025 yet, of course, but the forecast in this budget is for those dramatic price rises in our power bills. The opposition is really going for broke on this. This is tough for Labor because they did make that promise. It was always, to be frank, I think a sketchy promise, I thought, because, you know, it was based on the government's whole $20 billion sort of transform the transmission grid to cope with the renewable transformation. And that's a, that's a big plan to implement when you think about the skill shortages we currently have, the supply constraints we currently have. It was always a big offer, I thought. You know, solar and wind and pumped hydro got to be integrated into the grid smoothly. Renewable energy is cheaper, so that's how we got this or this promise that your power bills would come down because by then we'd have all this renewable, cheaper renewable energy into our grid. All very well, but there's a long way to go, as I say, and a lot of challenges between now and then. But, you know, as to why the government didn't go for a handout PK and spend some of that windfall profit, a lot of the money they got that they weren't expecting that they banked, a lot of it came from higher resources, prices for our for our exports and also Irony. and also big profits being made by the power companies because we're paying such big power mm. bills mm -hmm. so that is the irony the money came from there a lot of it but they didn't hand it back i think they will have to at some point offer some support to the businesses you mentioned who could go to the wall very quickly if they don't get some help here and some households too because you know they're going to need it. But before they do that, I think the government's plan is to pile on the pressure to the gas industry in particular mm. to try and force the companies who are making big money off these power bill shocks to cap prices in some way. The government is, you know, th more than threatening regulatory intervention right now, isn't it? It's, it's actually equipped the ACCC in this budget to work out what they can do, how they can make something happen here. Yeah, they have. And this is a really big deal because... 
I think there is a growing frustration. You know, there's a lot of outrage. We know that this has been looming. These problems have emerged in the energy market. And there is some criticism that the government did not kind of outline what it would do Mm. in terms of an intervention earlier. And I think that some of that criticism is fair because this isn't new. You remember the first few weeks, Fran, of the actual new government, one of the first orders of business they had to deal with was the energy crisis straight away. Um, And at that point, there were calls for interventions and for, you know, gas reservation reserves, which is, of course, hard to retrofit. And And they did make a move there. They did do an intervention there to make sure there is more gas available for the domestic market, but it's clearly not enough. I I mean, the Treasurer is saying, well, these forecasts for these dramatic price rises that were in the budget, you know, were late coming. Basically, they came late in the budget preparation process. But Mm. I think you're right. They they know this is – they must have known this would blow up because other countries are paying these subsidies. So what's their strategy here? As I said, I think it's maximum pressure to allow them to do maximum intervention into the energy market. Yeah, and there are a few options available to them. Look, they haven't been big fans of an idea of a windfall profits tax for the gas companies. The Greens are pushing for it, others too. They don't want to do that. There are interventions that they can take. Code of conduct is uh, one of the um, parts that they're looking at. There's also the heads of agreement with the companies. The Treasurer has been quite careful about outlining what he might do because he says, and I think he's partly right, that you know this is with the state governments. There's so many levers and so many people involved. He's just not into just putting something yeah. out there just for the sake of it. And yeah. I think it's fair. But I also think there there is a massive sense of urgency. I spoke to Tony Wood from the Grattan Institute, an energy expert. He said they need to do this really quickly. Yeah. Um, It needs to be in in place by the beginning of next year because this is a looming crisis. You can't drag your feet on this. And so, and there is a lot of political pressure on them too because of all those promises. If they don't want to intervene to put money in people's pockets, I had the New South Wales Treasurer, admittedly, they're facing an election soon. (laughs) So, you know, you need to look at all comments people make in the prism of politics sometimes. But he called for a rebate for energy users saying that there is just no help for consumers and there needs to be. So you need to do something if you're not going to help consumers because I I reckon it's a really big risky thing not to. And also it's just unfair. People shouldn't be facing prices like this in an energy rich rich country like ours. Well, exactly right. And when the power companies are making such big profits, we're going to talk more about this with particularly the politics of this, I think, with Lenore in a moment. But PK, just before we go to Lenore, uh, another major thing happening this week, Labor's introducing its new industrial relations bill, the Secure Jobs Better Pay Bill. There's a few elements to it. Uh, As we know, workers will be able to appeal to the Fair Work Commission for the right to have more flexible working hours. And then there's the whole multi-employer bargaining change, which business is not on board with. But uh, the right for more flexible working hours, what difference is that going to make? I think it's a huge potential difference for particularly women. And Tony Burke, I interviewed him on uh, Radio National Breakfast and asked him, he was the first interview he did outlining his bill, right? And he, he gave some really good, a good example just to explain. It's so meaningless unless you explain industrial relations in practical terms. He said in cases when you're a, a mum and you want hours which mean you can go pick up your child from school or childcare at three o'clock, that you have the right to request 
that your shift finishes at three. So you still want to work, but you want to get the shift that allows you to be able to pick up and deal with your caring responsibilities. Now, at the moment, you can request it, but it doesn't have to be offered to you. Now you can go to Fair Work Australia and really your boss can be essentially told, you know, you have to offer it. There are exemptions, of course, if it is unreasonable uh, t- to, to be giving that shift for whatever reason, that it's not in the business's interests and, and you know, it's not a blanket rule. But in cases where he says they're just not offering you that shift because they prefer someone else, but there's no reason that you do as a worker have the right. Now, I think that is pretty empowering, particularly for women in these feminised industries who have enormous challenges in their lives, having children. If you're a single mum, you're doing these difficult shifts. They're not they're highly paid, as you know, Fran, yeah. um, and you need to... Low uh, paid and inflexible often. And really stressful. Like I've you know got to know mums at school who have these hours and lives and are single mums. And it's really hard like and heartbreaking not to be able to do that and having to sometimes rely on informal networks and so forth. It's hard. Yeah, it's it's hard. hard yakka. I mean, I have a partner who helps me a lot and we help each other and I still find it hard being a parent. It's hard. And so I think industrial relations laws that actually empower women uh, on paper, at least a good idea, but multi-employer bargaining that's been built into this, which could allow for strike action across different workplaces. Businesses are pretty worried about this. The business sector is worried. There are implications, although Tony Burke told me he doesn't think it will lead to higher disputation. They've also exempted the CFMEU, for instance, essentially, from being able to take part in this. That's important because he says they don't need any help. You know, mm. these blokey industries, they, they, they're doing pretty well when it comes to industrial relations. It's about the, the feminised industries. But it is contentious stuff, Fran. You wouldn't say there's a consensus on this bill. Oh, a long way from consensus. The bill will come out this week and then it'll go into a, a long process of consultation and, and business is, is just warming up. I mean, they are not happy. So there's going to be a lot more said on this. Sure is. Should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. Lenore Taylor is the editor of Guardian Australia and our guest in the party room. Welcome, Lenore. Hello, you two wonderful women. Welcome. Great to have you back in such a big week as Budget Week, Lenore, obviously. We've talked a little bit about what the government did offer in this budget and what's not in this budget has really become the dominant story and that's the fact Mm -hmm. there's no subsidy for power prices. What is the government going to do about power prices, do you reckon? Oh, it, that is very difficult to say, but obviously they are going to have to do something. I mean, they did kind of rebadge their election promises as cost of living measures, but and some of them are, mm. to be fair. Eventually. But they just can't do nothing. And, you know, in Canberra, the political debate is a bit about, you know, quite legitimately about whether they broke their promise to bring energy bills down and the chutzpah of the coalition talking about that without acknowledging their own role in it. But all of that is really going to be swept away when people get their power bills over the next year and, you know, in the real world where people just can't pay them. So I sort of looked at this when I did Insiders a few weeks ago and given what the government was saying then, the only sort of avenue that I could see on gas prices was for them to rework the agreement they have with the gas companies who have Mm -hmm. to justify what a reasonable price is and where they benchmark that to, whether that justification can be benchmarked to where gas prices are right now or whether it can be benchmarked against a a longer term 
more rational average on gas prices. My Canberra team revealed last night that they've asked the ACCC to look at exactly that. And just to decode that a little, because I, I heard um, mm. Tony Wood talking to you, PK, about this very thing, the changing the, he mm. called the heads of agreement there. Just to m- say what that would mean, it would be looking at what the average was maybe before the power prices started to rocket and, and set it there. Yeah, I don't know in detail, but you would look at it over the longer term, so you would be benchmarking it against a lower gas price level, and they couldn't justify the current costs on the basis of a very narrow window of cost increase. Like, they couldn't justify it against the current spike in prices. That's really, I mean, yeah, the, the technicalities of it are a little bit beyond but it me. Holds but it holds it at a lower wholesale price. Yeah, and so, it's, and so it would be a way of doing it where they're not imposing a government-imposed cap, they, thou shalt not charge more than this. It is sort of linked to the market. So mm. the hysterical reaction from companies could be somewhat mitigated because, you know, the Santos boss was out there in the Fin Review to, this week saying that market intervention would be the end of the world and we'd end up like Argentina. Yeah, the same Santos whose half-year profit a few months ago was up like 200 or 300%. Anywho, I think it's a way that is still linked, it, it's still a reasonable thing to do. It's not dissimilar to the way that electricity prices are set and regulated, but it would have the effect of bringing prices down to an extent. Now, how much is obviously the question. I guess that's what the ACCC is looking into. But I think it would work. And we had an interview with Rod Sims this week, the former ACCC boss, who said, you know, if the government just threatened export control, the companies would do something on price quick smart. Mm. So I think they've got the ability or the way to do something on gas. Then there's the electricity market, and that's a whole other question. And I think the states are starting to move there. You know, Victoria and South Australia have been flagging, taking back some more control Mm. over the energy sector. The Andrew government saying they're going to revive the state electricity commission. power company again. Yeah, exactly. So the governments, the state governments seem to be saying they don't have confidence anymore that the private sector can deliver, well, and certainly not deliver the prices at the same time as the decarbonisation of the sector is going ahead and governments need to take more control. But I'm much less clear as to how that will pan out in the electricity sector. And I think that Friday's energy minister's meeting, I'd buy tickets for that, actually. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would. You would front row seat. (laughs) I would love it. I know that about you. But what (laughs) I want to know is... Yes, it's risky to intervene, uh, sovereign risk. Obviously, there are lots of factors to be considered for, you know, governments. But Mm. this one, surely it has low political risk. I mean, even the New South Wales treasurer came on RM Breakfast and said, yeah, we'd back an intervention. We're talking now in unprecedented territory, right? This is untenable politically. You cannot allow people's electricity bills to go up by, what is it, 56%. And think that it's going to be okay. You need to do something. And I think what the government has been clearly saying is that they are going to do something. I'm a little bit surprised, to be honest, that they are still obviously not clear exactly what. Yes. I mean, it's not like we haven't seen this coming. I feel like I'm surprised that they didn't sort of have a clearer idea about this earlier but I do think they understand they really need to act. These are the same, a lot of the same people who were around either in government or in advisory positions when the quite reasonable idea of a resource rent tax was raised by a previous government and they've seen what these industries can do when they kind of get into full campaign mode. So yeah, they've got body memories here. Given- but 
Yeah. But then why didn't they take the much easier path, though cost money, of course, of just some direct subsidies for at least some people and some businesses in this time? Other countries because have done inflation. it. Because inflation. Because inflation, I think. Right. I mean, if you can reduce the price rather than put money into people's pockets, you don't run the risk of doing something that would further fuel inflation. Isn't that the reason? I suppose, but it's maybe inflationary. But if you're just doing it for the lowest paid who Mm, are really suffering, I think they're going to have to do something more direct in the short term. The price changes can't be done in a way that happens quite quickly, then I'm inclined to agree with Mm. you. But I don't really understand enough how quickly that could flow through to know the answer to that question. Now, you mentioned, Lenore, that the politics here too. The government did promise $275 off your power bill by 2025. And this, I suspect, and we're recording this Thursday morning, Um, Peter Dutton delivers his budget in reply speech, his first ever as opposition leader, signature moment for him and the opposition, I think. And he's going to really, really zero in on this. You know, it's a no-brainer really for an opposition, isn't it? I think it does give Peter Dutton a feather to fly with, yes. If you sort of scrutinise the feather for five seconds, you know, the, the coalition has played a big role in the fact that Australia has is so ill-prepared for this global energy price shock by doing three-fifths of nothing on the energy transition for the last decade, and that would be particularly galling for the government to cope with. However, it does give him a feather to fly with. They did have that modelling before the election. It was, you know, in a place and a time, but that gets lost in the wash of politics. And it is a promise that that links directly to the thing that is hurting people the most. So, yes, I'm sure that is what Peter Dutton will zero in on and it kind of increases the political necessity for the government to have some um, solution or some answer to what they're going to do about this sooner rather than later. What's the politics of a budget without a cash splash, do you think? Was this a, um, you know, a determined move by the Albanese government? It was sort of a down payment budget, wasn't it? The cash splash was what they promised in the election, what we already knew about. So there were no new, you know, baubles to talk about. And it sort of did that and it did the most obvious, easiest to manage spending cut. And then it sort of, you know, put that to one side and they can now start working on the May budget over the next six months. So I think we sort of need to judge it by slightly different standards, if you like, in that it it was their first budget, but it was the kind of, get the immediate things done that we need to do, get the legislation through that we need to legislate kind of budget. And then I think we will have a a fairer and more reasonable measure to judge them by in next May's budget when they've had a proper run up to do or not do bigger things. Let's talk about tax reform. Anthony Albanese is putting it and other big reforms on the agenda for some time in the future, promising some reform. Here he is on RM Breakfast talking to PK. Just want to ask very clearly, is tax reform on the agenda in this term of your government? Well, our focus here last night was certainly not on, on tax. But is it coming? It was, on, it was on delivering. Look, we will have a discussion with the Australian people over coming years about reform. The job of reform is never done. Uh, The job of reform has to be continuous. I want Australia to be as strong and resilient 
as we can be. So the job of reform, Lenore, is never done, but you've got to start it somewhere. And there wasn't much of it here. You know, the closing a few multinational uh, corporation tax loopholes. Got these big spending promises the nation has to grapple with on aged care, on childcare, mm. on NDIS and beyond. And we have to work out a tax base that is going to manage that. Do you think this government has the ticker for tax reform? And if so, will they consider, do you think, before the next election, revisiting some of those tax changes, maybe that Bill Shorten took to the 2019 election, the mm. franking credits, mm. negative gearing, both really ripe for reform and could reel in a lot of money? Yeah, the, I mean, the truth is none of us really know. And I, I remember in that interview, PK said to him, is it something you're going to do this term or will you go to the election seeking a mandate? And he sort of ducked around that as mm. politicians do. But I, I think it's something they should do. It's going to be hard for them to avoid. I mean, the debate so far has been conducted around the stage three tax cuts. Will they or won't they? The government kicked that out past the budget. Even if they did something there, and that is a big if, it would only be trimming them at the upper end. They aren't going to cancel them. That won't deliver them the revenue they need to to fix the structural problem in the budget. So they need to have a slightly broader debate than that. But then they will also want to have it in a way where they don't lose control of it, like basically every tax reform debate we've had in the last mm. decade. Mm. You know, so they're going to have to look at things like superannuation tax concessions, like family trusts, like you said, negative gearing and capital gains tax. I think they should look at, at how we tax resource companies again. You know, the resource super profits tax or something a bit like it is not looking like a bad idea right now. No, but um, you just sort of mentioned the ghost of 2010 mm -hmm, there, I think it was, wasn't mm -hmm, it? You know, they got scared yeah. off by the, yeah. the big mining companies and yet other countries are bringing these windfall profit tax. It seems to make mm. sense right now. It does. So, I mean, the government is taking things methodically and carefully. And I think we need to wait and watch because I think if they're going to do this, they will do it in a careful way and a way that tries to manage the debate in a better way than most of their predecessors yeah. have done. Or maybe they will squib it entirely. I think they would be doing the nation a big disservice if they squib it entirely. Mm -hmm. One thing for sure, though, Anthony Albanese reckons you need a second term before you can really start making any change yeah. in government. So yeah. he wants to get that second term. So in that sense, maybe you have a, a tax reform discussion and then you take it to the next election, but then you make the next election about tax. Yeah. And that, you know, we know what a high wire act that was yeah. for John Howard and the GST. Like that is a scary political proposition. So these are not easy, they're not easy policy uh, questions, but they're really in this kind of cycle, in this kind of political environment, they're not easy political questions. And I think, you know, I think we just need to wait till this is through and see where the government goes. But, you know, I, I hope they have this discussion because it's one that the country really needs to have. Yeah, I think there is a building consensus too that the discussion has to be had. Sure, the opposition might run pretty hard on it, but, you know, we've now got these till independence. We've got a broader range of people in the parliament mm -hmm. and the political system. Into, like, well, I just mm -hmm. think that things are changing. But let's park that because we actually don't have a proposal to talk about yet anyway. <laughs> and let's talk about the growth areas in the budget and the spending side. So we've just done the revenue, let's do spending. And the NDIS, which is the second biggest growth area in the budget now, mm -hmm. the National Disability Insurance Scheme. The budget is forecasting its, its cost to grow 14% each year uh, for the next decade. There are forecasts, uh, they, they're just forecasts, but that the program could eventually cost more than $100 billion by 2033. This is like huge. It's enormous. Mm -hmm. What's going on? And Labor getting again into really difficult territory for them. They are the architects and the, the owners, custodians of this scheme, and now they're going to have to rein it in. 
they are. I mean, there was a small uh, measure in the budget, a sort of fraud fraud fusion task force. I don't really understand the fusion bit, but anyway, that was what it was called. And a review. And I think the review is what will be interesting. Um, I think the review needs to focus on both the benefit as well as the costs, because, you know, if people living with a disability uh, get a job, are able to participate in society, that is actually also a benefit. So we need to look at this in net terms. I think the review will also look at the extent to which the NDIS, because it's functioning in the way it is, is kind of soaking in a whole lot of costs that it wasn't originally designed for because other systems aren't working, like there's the failings in the aged care system, the failings in other in other areas of service delivery and how that can be uh, dealt for sort of like almost like there's cost shifting into the NDIS. And then I think they really are going to have to look at what the country can afford to do because, I mean, everybody can see that the NDIS is making a massively important difference to people's lives and is a fantastic policy initiative, but we have to be able to afford it. I, I just think the review needs to look at it more broadly than a graph in the budget is what I'm trying to say. The yeah. graph in the budget just tells you one bit of the of the question. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Because it's people's lives. There's so many Australians mm-hmm. affected by it, not just those with disability, but their carers too. Uh, you know, lives are being liberated really because of it when yeah. it's working well. But and it's I would a, like to see the net, the net, the net benefit, exactly. the, the cost benefit analysis of it. That's exactly yeah. what, you know, some of the disability advocates are saying let's not just look at the costs let's look at the profits the the benefits for the for our society and our economy of getting more mm-hmm. of these people into mm-hmm. the workforce for instance and more productively into the workforce so there is that but i think the costs have the shocked costs everyone are watering yeah, yeah the costs are right. watering lenore always great to have you on the party room thank you thank you it's been a pleasure we'll move to questions without notice we give the call to the leader of the opposition Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. And it's time for our question time. Uh, a bit probably less rowdy than the questions times <laughs> I've seen this week in the Parliament. And this question comes from Joseph, who asks At what stage of budget desperation will we hear about lifting the GST? Would that be the solution of our problems or just political suicide? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it, it, we're in sort of this period in in Australia, aren't we? Have been for some time where any kind of tax increase seems to be political suicide. Just ask Bill Shorten. But um, in terms of the GST, I think there's a lot of people have thought for a long time it should probably be increased. But the issue is every state and territory has to be on board with that, I think, under the the original rules of the way it was uh, drafted. And some of the states aren't keen on that because of, is it, I always get this wrong, PK, is it vertical fiscal consolidation or or horizontal. Um, it's the share that happens that some of the states make more out of the GST increase and then it gets shared amongst the other states that don't have such a big um, cons- consumer base to raise it from. So it's difficult to do that. But in terms of budget desperation, yes, I think, Joseph, you're right on the money. We are spending more than we are bringing in in terms of revenue. Our revenue base is not big and broad enough. We need to change it. That's what all the experts are saying. The government's heard that but they were just a bit 
you know, shy after what happened to Bill Shorten in 2019 with his suite of budget increase, of tax increases, um, to offer anything at the moment. So they've been a bit coy on it, but there is going to be a need for us to change our tax base. Is that going to be getting rid of some of the stage three tax cuts? Is it going to be bringing in things like we've discussed already here today, you know, new kind of tax increases like franking credits or negative gearing or all those sorts of things? Um, They will need to be discussed and they will need to be discussed within the next year or two because we've got these big spending um, responsibilities on aged care and childcare and um, the NDIS, we're going to have to do something about paying for them. Yeah, I, I do think this will be something that the government and governments, even subsequent, uh, whoever gets elected um, after the next election and beyond, need to consider. Uh, but is this government up for it? No. They've told us no. I don't think they are. Um, certainly when I've asked Jim Chalmers, there is a shutdown of this more than there is of any of the other proposals. But I know some of the economists say that this one is a low-hanging fruit, really obvious thing to do. Politically risky? Absolutely. Because when you increase a GST, guess what? <laughs> people's cost of living crisis, people's prices go up. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's risky. Um, that annoys people. And that's the thing about um, political reform. Uh, there are always losers. There are always people who get cranky. And so governments have to weigh all of that up. And that's what we see here. Keep your questions coming in. We love getting them. Um, you can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And you can follow us and you should follow us, The Party Room, on the ABC Listen app so you never miss a word. That's right. And there is actually another podcast discussing a bit of politics. If you like politics, you'll love the new Victorian election podcast, Matters of State. Friend of The Party Room, Raphael Epstein, and ABC state political reporter Richard Willingham will talk you through everything you need to know about the Victorian election on November the 26th. I am a resident of Victoria, so I'm quite exercised about this election. Um, it's really interesting. New episodes every Friday, and you can listen on the ABC listening. How good is that? So many podcasts, so much politics, when too much politics is never enough. That's it from us for this week. See you, PK. See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.